From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM in Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. Hey guys, it's Jim Cohn. Welcome to the relaunch of Circle of Willis. We are back and better than ever. This episode is a little bit different. Wait, (laughs) who are you? I'm Sage Tangway, your new producer. (laughs) You heard that right, folks. We have a producer now. This relaunch is part of a podcast initiative we are starting at Brown Residential College, which I am the principal of here at the University of Virginia. She'll be popping in from time to time to talk about these interviews with me. So, anyway, as you were saying... This interview is a bit different than what you've done before for several reasons. One, you have two simultaneous interview subjects, a husband and a wife, no less. Two, it was recorded in front of a live audience. And three, these aren't just professionals who you've had brushes with. As we'll hear, you've actually worked extensively with the Gottmans. Tell me about that. Yeah, so in the early 90s, I was an undergraduate at the University of Washington. Initially, there was a little ad that came up outside of the psychology office that said, hey, we're looking for something called coders. And a coder is someone who goes in and learns a system for identifying behaviors that John Gottman had described in order to systematically watch couples fight. (laughs) And that, that I thought, that's what I want to (laughs) do. I want to watch couples fight. And I did that for a couple of years and then graduated. Just about that time, a job came up for something called a lab coordinator. So you get and to watch I, couples fight even more. Exactly. But not only that, I get to like run the lab. Right. And there was there was the the part of the lab where we had couples come in and fight. And there was another part of the lab that was even better. It was called the apartment lab. And couples would come in and spend 24 hours in the lab. Wow. Hooked up with physiological equipment. We'd collect their urine because it had stuff in it. Yeah. <laughs> and we would collect their blood the, the morning after. Oh, wow. And... So Um, like a full physiological rundown. And 12 hours of that apartment lab experience was also videotaped. And all 12 hours had to be coded. And my job for about three years was to make this stuff happen. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. Right around the end of that time, John starts writing something he'd never done before, popular books, books for popular audiences. And the first one is now sort of a classic. It's called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. Since then, he's come out with just book after book after book. (laughs) I've lost track of them all. The one that occasioned this conversation that we had in front of an audience was a book he and his wife Julie wrote called Eight Dates. And the idea comes from the knowledge that couples, married couples, especially with kids and and careers, are spending less and less time just interacting with each other and getting to know each other. And so they wanted to sort of inject a little get to know each other into their their relationship advice. So that's that's what's coming up. It's a it's a conversation between me, John, and Julie Gottman about their book Eight Dates and about their work. Okay, let's take a listen. 
Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us here tonight. I met John Gottman for the first time in 1991 as an undergraduate student at the University of Washington. And uh, at that time, uh, the, the Gottman Lab was absolutely the place to, to work. It was one of the most exciting places, really, in the country, uh, because John was pioneering the study of relationships from a very scientific perspective. He was really doing things that nobody, not only nobody had done, nobody had even thought of, everybody thought it would be crazy to try to do. He is slightly crazy. Uh, and as you'll, as you'll, that's true of some of the, the world's best scientists all throughout history. John's work has been featured in just about every venue you can imagine. Justifiably, he's published, I don't know, I've lost track of how many books. And they're all amazing. He, with his friend and colleague Bob Levinson, started the first Love Lab in the 1970s. By the time I came to the lab, the Love Lab was really uh, sort of getting its stride. The apartment lab was being built. And uh, John was taking unprecedented steps to really put couples, how they interact, why they behave the way they do, and how it affects their bodies under the microscope. And John was going to go ahead and introduce Julie. <laughs> I've never done this before, so. <laughs> Mark Twain once said, my wife knows everything that can be known, but I know the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Julie and I have been working together for over 23 years, and she's just an amazing collaborator. It's just been magnificent to work with her. We fought like cats and dogs in the beginning. <laughs> I was very arrogant. And uh, I would ask her, after she had over 30 years of experience doing therapy, I would say, where's your data? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I, I came to realize that she really understood how people worked and what change was about, what therapy was about. Mm -hmm. She had specialized in working with some of the most difficult patients in the world, schizophrenics without medication, addicts in Boston, heroin addicts, incest survivors, torture survivors. She specialized in trauma. She also specialized in working with cancer patients and their families, women who had survived rape, and did very long-term therapy. And so all of my ideas about therapy were completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And if it wasn't for her, we never would have developed any of these ideas that came out of our work together. It's just, she's really been the center of all of our thinking together. Bob Levinson and I, and Jim was a part of this, we were very good at predicting when people would deteriorate and how their relationships would tank and they'd get divorced. But we had, didn't have a clue about how to help anybody. <laughs> Well, we're making a good living just watching people fall apart. You know. What was the point of trying to help anybody? But it was really collaborating with Julie that we were able to put together these ideas into a testable theory, you know, one that could be shown to be wrong. And we've, we've, over these 23 years, we've really shown that we can make a difference. Bob and I found that there were masters of relationship and disasters Bob and I were two of the disasters, <laughs> clueless guys, starting to do research on 
on relationships. But it was really this collaboration with Julie that made the difference in being able to help people. And Aww. so I'm very proud okay. to be her friend. <laughs> yeah. And this is the genius uh, yeah. who dreamed of really understanding what predicts whether couples stay together happily, unhappily, or divorce. And by golly, he figured it out. And that is magnificent. So. OK, thank you. Back at you. OK. All right. So. <laughs> Yeah, and really figuring out sort of that communication is such a vital piece of all of that. Right. I mean, one of the, when, you, when you look at, I mean, one of the things that I'd love to talk with you both about uh, is the state of relationship science in the 80s and the 90s, to say nothing of the 70s. It was rather dismal. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, to, and that's the science. And when you talk about applying it in the therapy session, it gets, if anything, worse. Right. Um, but when you look at some of the dominant theories of the time, there's a lot about sort of personality matching, sort of bargaining, or, uh, uh, you know, it's not, you know, sort of roles that people play in sort of sy systems. You don't see a lot about how people talk to each other. Right. So where does that come from? In, in, in all of this? Where does, where, does, where does the focus on communication, and why is communication so important? How do we live? How do we live, right? You know, we don't live in our heads internally thinking in abstract terms that have no reference to our real life, right? How do we live? We talk to one another. We are packed animals. We depend on each other, right? So how do we do that? How do we go about creating family? How do we go about making decisions? How do we figure out who's going to call the plumber on Friday and who's going to stay home to meet with the plumber? You know, there are ways of communicating that John brilliantly figured out would work well in one case and work terribly in a different way. So by videotaping couples, having a conversation about the events of their day and having yet another conversation about some problem that they were trying to solve and then analyzing the videotape hundredth of a second by hundredth of a second which was in turn synchronized to physiological measures, and then adding it all up and following the couples, bringing them back into the lab every two or three years, and following them as long as 20 years without necessarily intervening, what would happen? And you do that over and over and over again, as you, a brilliant scientist, knows. <laughs> you figure out, by golly, there are patterns that really predict what's going to happen six years down the road. And we found that we could predict with over 90% accuracy what would happen based on watching them for 15 minutes, which meant that nobody invited us to dinner anymore. Yeah, I was just going to say. I was just going to say buzzkill at parties. I know. Yeah, right. it's really uh, a drag. You guys, yeah. 
I mean, not, not, not even just for the others, but for yourselves. I mean, I do, well, I, and I suppose you could entertain yourselves with, with, with discussions about who was going to make it and who was not at the party. Yeah, it's, it's, great. it's great in restaurants, just yeah. watching couples. Yeah, right. We started showing our daughter, you know, the films, the videotapes. Oh, yeah of good relationships and bad ones when she was two years old. So the poor kid didn't stand a chance. And fortunately, she married somebody absolutely wonderful last, last summer. summer. Oh, congratulations. So if you start when they're two years old, yeah. there's hope. It's one of the takeaways. Uh, start training your kid. Um, she was a good coder, too. Uh-huh. I remember the coding. Uh, so one of the things that that John developed was the, the specific affect coding system. This is the SPAF. I, I became really involved in the SPAF and learned it uh, intensely, and it was applied to the study of these couples. How many couples would you say you guys have watched fight? Um, <laughs> I think it's probably several thousand. Though. Yeah. Several Over thousand. 3,000? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's always fun. <laughs> well, for, the, for this book, uh, the Eight Dates book, we actually got 300 couples to record their dates, so we got to listen got to 2,400 dates, oh my which God. is really fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you go on YouTube, you can actually find a lot of dates videotape recorded on YouTube, and it's really interesting how painful dating is. Yeah, for most yeah. people, they interesting. It. It's yeah. very, so interesting yeah. how painful. It's painful. They usually get a little drunk before the date, and then uh. they drink during the date. You know, and they don't even have though much you memory of the date. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that always struck me about the the lab when couples would come in was how easy it was to get couples to fight. Yeah, it was just really. I mean, it wasn't exactly like falling off a log, but it was kind of close. Yeah, you it just, really was, yeah. You a little nudge, and they'll fight. And that, that uh, <laughs> I like to tell people that I've met who are just dating, have you, have you fought yet? They say, no. Go, oh, well, it just, it will. You will. <laughs> but the, the things that comes up in your book, and in, and in a lot of the work that you do, is something that I personally find very surprising when I, whenever I think about it. And I don't always know how to grapple with it. And that is that you say that some conflicts are unresolvable. First of all, what exactly does that mean? And second of all, what do you do with that? <laughs> so, you know, what we found uh, in our research, it was, it was so beautiful, especially when you're following couples, is that 69% of all problems are perpetual problems. You never solve them, ever, ever. And one person asked me, well, God, you know, is that comforting or is that terrible, disastrous, <laughs> right? Are That's you sort of my question, freaked too. out by it? But, you know, what we've seen is that a lot of people are comforted by it because they find that, yep, the same stuff keeps coming up over and over and over again. And they're typically issues that people fall on one side or the other about that are based on lifestyle preferences or personality differences, right? And the reality is that most of us do not pair up based on compatibility. That's the big myth. We're actually more drawn to people who are different than us. And so, as a result, 
those problems will continue forever. And it's okay. It's normal. You're not a failure if you're not solving issues. Okay, but, but can you enjoy it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do we enjoy it? <laughs> I, you know, I think you can if you can find it humorous. If you find it a source of humor and you tease each other about it and you build little compromises around the edges, right? So, for example, John and I have a perpetual issue forever and ever that we will always have, which uh -oh. is, are is you ready? Safe to, is, it's is it's safe really to talk safe about because, form? yeah, we, we check this stuff. Okay, it's we not going to get better until she gets therapy. <laughs> <laughs> And this is, this is a halo he's wearing now. <laughs> God so, gave me this halo. It proves that I'm innocent. He's innocent. <laughs> so we like to say that John is charmingly sloppy, and I'm obsessively, compulsively neat, right? Right. Okay, so that means the books. I mean, you, oh, as yeah. a scientist, I, rem you I remember his office. office. Do you remember the office? <laughs> it's like you could die walking into his office. Yeah, yeah. And I was nervous a few times. I face <laughs> death every time I make the bed because I have to climb over about four feet of books, right, next to the bed. So, okay. That's <clears throat> always going to be the case. It's never going to change. Right. He's yeah. not going to become me. I'm not going to become him. But he knows that after maybe four weeks of stuff being scattered all over the place, he starts to feel me vibrate. <laughs> and then, you know, after a certain time, my voice starts to go up a few decibels, and then a few more, and then a few more, until finally I will say, now. And then he'll clean it up. And we're good for another three to four weeks. And that's the way it's been for 32 years. But the Amazon boxes keep coming in. I know. The Amazon boxes. I know. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing now. More books. More books. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, so you're kind of talking about a kind of communication. You're, you're, you know, communication comes back again. Um, one of the things that it strikes me about these dates is that the function of the dates is to make those processes explicit instead of implicit. Is that true? Well, you know, we really designed the dates uh, after we read this study that was done at UCLA by the Sloan Center on 30 dual career couples who, Tom Bradbury was one of the PIs on that study. Oh, yeah. and he said that the, these couples talk to each other an average of 35 minutes a week a week? So their life had devolved into this infinite to-do list. Yeah. They spent less than 10% of an evening in the same room even. So they, they had really ignored the relationship. They focused on career, on children, and romance really went to die. And so we thought maybe we could design dates that would be a lot of fun, but set fire to curiosity again about one another. And so the dates aren't confrontational. They're designed to be fun and interesting and exploring one another and hearing the stories about how people feel about money, their history with money and their family, going back generations. Why is money important? What's enough money? Why are they earning money? What's the purpose of money? What does it mean yeah. to you? You yeah. talk about how money is symbolic. It is, really. I, mean, I, I analyzed 900 arguments that people had in the lab about money. 
and I stopped at 100 meanings of money that, that oh. sort of underlay the arguments about spending, you know, and they would fight tooth and nail about the spending. But Julie and I, you know, mostly Julie designed this intervention called Dreams Within Conflict, where people ask each other six questions about what, what's the value of their position? What's the meaning of it? What's the story behind the meaning of their position? So these perpetual problems that are gridlocked that they can't compromise on, suddenly 87% of couples in our workshops understand each other about these underlying issues because it's all about meaning. And so these dates are about really understanding each other and exploring one another and exploring the meaning part of where conflicts ordinarily would be. And so what happens to a couple when they orient themselves that way, when they, when they put work towards discovering and understanding each other? Sure, go ahead, baby. Yeah, the, so first of all, the key element is that one person is a listener and listens while asking these questions. So it doesn't become uh, a thrashing back and forth of, well, I believe this, I think you're wrong. You know, it doesn't become that kind of discussion. Instead, one person is really seeking to understand the internal world, the deeper value, the deeper meaning, the childhood history that informs that person's position on an issue and simply listens and absorbs it. And then they trade roles. Then the other person does the same. And the impact is incredible. What happens is that before, you took only at face value the other person's position on an issue and disagreed with it, you know, sometimes really adamantly. When you understand the sources of it, why it's so important, compassion is built and softening is created. And it becomes so much easier then to work on compromise someplace in the middle because you're not engaged in win and lose. You're not trying to win a battle. Zero sum. That's right, the zero sum game. So instead, you're really building a compromise based on compassion for your partner and understanding of, of the existential underlying meaning in that person's position. Would, would you say that listening is sort of maybe a cardinal virtue in this, this whole dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, but it's a certain kind of listening. It's not the kind of listening we usually do, you know, when we listen with half of our minds and the other half is formulating our rebuttal to what our partner's saying. Oh, right, right, you right, know, right. It's a listening. Well, <laughs> it's lawyerly I, listening. Yeah, it's, it's not lawyerly listening. It's really, so when Julie says the four most terrifying words in the English <laughs> language, we need to talk. <laughs> I've learned to take this notebook out of my back pocket. This one has unicorns on it. So it I calms see me that. Down. That's very nice. Yeah, 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 it calms me down. Oh, good. And I open it up to a blank page, and I take out a pen. And at first, I'm thinking, oh, damn it, you know? Uh, and then as I write down what she's saying, I'm going, well, that's a good point. Oh, 
That makes sense. Oh, she's really upset. I can see why she is. So it's a listening with understanding, with compassion, where I'm not And unicorn to, notebooks. And I write it in the notebook. Uh, my longest has been 18 single-space pages, where Julie talked for two and a half hours. And I've saved it, because... Like a monument. Yeah, I got to understand so much about her that I didn't understand. Yeah. You know, and this was just yeah. about five years ago, I remember. We had a couple of hours in a hotel, and I said, how you doing, baby? And she said, I'll tell you if you shut up yeah. <laughs> and don't say anything and write. And I wrote. And it, it, well, you know, it, it strikes me that, that, you, that you use the word, I got to. I got to learn all of these things about. Yeah, it was an opportunity. It's an opportunity. Really, yeah. But that's an orientation. That's an orientation that, I mean, is, is that an orientation towards listening that you have to cultivate? Yeah, like or do you, do you just have it? No, it's. I mean, if you match, if you go to the dating website ahead, and you get you matched go. appropriately, won't you just want to listen? Or do you have to, do you have to learn to do these things? She's got to... something to say. So. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of listening, uh, you know, I think at first, when we're getting to know each other, we've gotten over that nervousness. The listening is natural, we're there. We want, you know, to find out who this person is. But as life creeps in, as busyness, careers, work, kids, and so on, we forget to listen. Mm -hmm. We forget to ask. We stop asking questions. That, too, is fundamental. So you can only listen when something meaningful is coming through. You can listen at that deeper level. So part of the purpose of this book was taking couples who hadn't talked, as John described, hadn't talked, had made changes over time, as we all do, right? We all evolve over time. But if we don't keep checking in on who are you now? What do you believe now? How yeah, has this experience yeah. changed you? What are you dreaming about here and now? How has your spirit changed? How have your values changed? How has your body changed that is influencing wow. your moods? You know, if you've gone through menopause, how is your sexuality changing? How are your kind of ups and downs changing? How is your sleep changing? All of that, we have to ask these things from time to time throughout our life together. Otherwise, we're back 50 years ago. We're yeah. back, you know, way back in early times, and we don't know how our partners have changed. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that it's so enriching, it's so beautiful to really unfold who that person is now, uncloak them by asking these questions. We were talking back in the green room about how the real the real mystery, the real sailing into the unknown is staying with someone intimately for a very long time because of right. negotiating and renegotiating and relearning all of these things and experiencing all of these unpredictable events together. Right, right. And they're going to affect you differently, right? Yeah. Because you're inside two different bodies. So you can't take for granted that even if you've gone through something together, you're each having the same experience. It may be very different. 
and you, you want to bring the richness of your own experience and listening to your partner's experience into the world of your relationship. When people are trying to listen without judgment or without mounting a, a lawyerly defense, you know, the, the, the famous, you know, yes, but. Yes, <laughs> right. I get it. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> that was a direct quote. <laughs> um, uh, I, I sometimes wonder, and this is not something that I, I think I really mastered during the time that I was, I was working in, in the, the Love Lab. Uh, I sometimes wonder, what are the preconditions that we need to set up as, as couples in order to facilitate that kind of listening? What do we need to do? I figured you talked about the, you know, the attunement, um, trust, the first date. The first date is on trust and commitment. This right. is pretty weighty. Is there a reason <laughs> that that's right at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, uh, trust is really the number one issue that keeps people from entering relationships, you know, because they think, can I really trust this person? Can I be safe with this person? Will they cheat on me? Will they be there for me when I need them? And all the arguments <clears throat> that the newlyweds, the 130 newlyweds had in the love lab were all about trust. You know, Am I more important than your mother? I remember this one guy who, uh, these people had been married just a couple of months, and, and she said, you know, um, when my toilet was overflowing, you left to play soccer. And, you know, that still bothers me that you chose your soccer team over helping me with my toilet. And he said, well, it's just arithmetic. You know, there were eight people counting on me there, and you're one. <laughs> and so just do the arithmetic. Eight is greater oh, sure. than one. That's why I picked them. Yeah. And wow. she said, yeah, but I'm the one. Yeah. I'm your wife. <laughs> yeah. I should matter more than eight people. And he says, that's never going to happen. So he was saying, you can't trust me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's what she was hearing, of course. And so, and so every argument was about, are you there for me? When the chips are down, are you going to be there for me? Every single one of those arguments were about trust. And commitment is something that also turns out to be very important. And it really was not my research, but Carol Rusbo's research for 30 years taught us how to think about commitment. And just a brilliant insight, you know, that there's this choice point when things aren't going well, and some people give voice to their concerns to their partner, and some people talk about their partner to someone else and complain to someone else. The nice lady down at Starbucks has a nice smile instead of my yeah. complaining to Julie. And but they're just those, a friend. But they're just friends yeah. at that point, right? Yeah. And they're also thinking, as she pointed out, they're thinking, I can do better. So after an argument with Julie, I'd be thinking, you know, who needs this crap? I can do better. Mm. And I start thinking about real or imagined relationships, and I nurture resentment for the qualities she doesn't have that the nice lady in Starbucks has that I see every day, but I don't know very well. You know, and Carol Rusbold said, the people who stay who are committed are nurturing gratitude for what they have with their partner. So staying in love is about really nurturing gratitude for what you have 
even when you're not together. And that's part of the secret of staying in love forever. There's this way for me in which the dates sort of come around and wind up going in a circle. You sort of start with trust, trust and commitment, and you move through, you know, agreeing to disagree, sort of dealing with some of the nuts and bolts. Right. You know, sex, sex. Oh, my God. Vulnerability and sex. Yeah. Um, children. Ha, <laughs> Um, sorry, I'm having my own emotional reactions to each of these things. Um, you know, sort of trying to create a sense of fun and adventure. All of these things are sort of the middle part of the story. And then we come to spirituality and dreams, the dream that you have for your, your own life and for your relationship. And to me, that connects right back up to trust and commitment. Right. Uh, because of this wonderful quote, may I read this quote from the, from the book? It's, in a committed relationship, you will both stop the world to try to understand and ease each other's pain. Right. You will both stop the world. What's fascinating to me is that that's, that's an existential, spiritual commitment. I mean, right. that's, that, that's, a, that's a dedication to something. Because... I can when I think of commitment, and maybe correct me, but I think of commitment as being the thing that you strap on to your back when you're maybe not feeling it all the time. Yeah. You know, you say, "No, this is a decision." Right. What do you What do you think about? That? I'm sorry. I've I've just been blathering on. Yeah. Can I say something about that? I'm, Go for it. Well, you know, when uh, 23 years ago, when we started talking to reporters and the general public. Reporters would always say, okay, you've been studying relationships for you know, 30 years or whatever it was. Can you boil it down to one thing? And, yeah. and I, I had a lot of trouble with that at first. But then I thought, actually, that's a really good question. What is the one thing that is at the center of making relationships work? What's the one thing that really differentiates the masters of relationship from the disasters? And I think it's that. It's that in a, in a great relationship, people are saying, when you're upset, baby, the world stops and I listen. There's nothing more important to me. If you're in pain, there's nothing more important to me than that. Whereas in relationships that don't work very well, people say, when you're feeling upset, when you're stressed, go away. I don't, I don't want to deal with your negativity. I've had it up to here with your negativity. You're so negative. Come to me when you're happy. Come to me when you want to make love. Come to me when you want to go skiing. But when you're, you know, depressed and you, I don't, ah, go away. I don't want that. Can I add yeah. something to that? You know, I clinically having uh, worked with so many couples. You know, it's it's always the clients who are teaching us, right? We're not so much teaching them; they're teaching us. Mm -hmm. Two. And everything that we've learned, uh, we should really uh, express gratitude to the thousands of couples who are willing to be a part of this yeah. research. So in terms of that statement, you know, the world stops and I want to listen. You know, what that is saying reminds me so much of all the couples I have treated where work was more important. Making money was more important. 
uh, maybe tending to the children was super important, but to the complete exclusion of the father or the mother of the children. Um, uh, being famous was important, achieving something, taking care of the parents. You know, there were so many other um, life purposes that crowded out the relationship. And as a result, what I often saw was both partners were lonely. They were desperately lonely because there was no deep, committed, I'm going to not only say I love you, I'm going to be the love in your life. I'm going to be that. That's who I am. I'm going to be the love. And the couples who really were successful, who found each other, again, even if they were distressed at first, even if they had affairs and rediscovered each other, built, as we like to call it, marriage number two, mm -hmm. with recommitment to each mm -hmm. other, mm -hmm. right? Um, they were making that love more important than anything else. That was the source of their riches. It's a motivation to try anything on a menu of, of things that might be helpful and right. to explore uh, these, these, these things that you have been teaching couples and therapists about for decades, about communication. You know, the sort of, the sort of nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty become part of your life more when you commit to engaging with them, right. it seems. Right. And also, it circles back to that listening, right? That statement is all about listening. The world stops. Nothing is more important. You're in pain. Talk to me. Yeah. Tell me yeah. what I can do. And that, as John was saying, that feeds trust. That, cre that creates the, the right. trust that you can right. then rely on later on. Right. It's hard to do. I mean, when, she's, when Julie's mad at me, I'm not happy about it. Yeah, you know, that's and, why it works. And, you know, and I, I, I want to say, <laughs> I want to say, go away. You know, why do you have to be so negative? But, but I say it now in my head. And <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> not always. <laughs> right. Most of the time, I, I'm not 100. percent Sometimes. <laughs> so, so what am I? 30 percent? <laughs> <laughs> I take notes, and I calm down while I'm taking notes. And that's a strategy you know, you've. Yeah, found that's really my helpful. strategy. And I, as I'm writing down what she's saying, and I have to slow her down, so I get it. Then I'm gradually I'm going. Well, that's a good point. You know, all right. So she's not so crazy. All right. <laughs> uh, that you know, yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, and. Gradually, you know, I stop being defensive, and I'm going, wow, you know, her point of view makes a lot of sense. It's not my point of view, but it still makes a lot of sense. The other thing, though, that's really important is that because he's writing down notes and so on, I have to be really careful what I say, because we write books, right? It may go into a book someday. Yeah, yeah. You never know right. with John. You never know. In this next section of tape, audience members had the opportunity to ask the Gottmans some questions. Unfortunately, it's really quiet, so instead of distorting the tape, we'll do our best to paraphrase. 
The first audience member recalled something about saying five positive things to every one negative thing in the Gottman's work and asked that they explain more about that ratio. Yeah, I, you know, that was a big surprise uh, to me. And it was, it was just a computation that we did, uh, Bob Levinson and I did, uh, just taking the number of seconds that people were nice to each other, polite, uh, interested in one another, affectionate, understanding, empathetic, shared humor, all the positive emotions. Uh, and dividing that by the number of seconds that they were hostile, angry, disappointed, hurt, and disgusted. And my predictions, which by the way have been wrong 60% of the time, <laughs> mostly wrong about what I think. So we're not gurus, we're, you know, we, we use, look at the data and mostly I've been wrong. I've kept track of it. And I thought uh, a great relationship based upon the disastrous relationships I had had with women, if there was as much negative as positive, I would have been happy with those relationships. <laughs> it turned out that in great relationships, that ratio was five to one. During conflict. During conflict, it was five to one. In the apartment lab that Jim's talking about, the one he ran when he was 22, <laughs> he ran that lab. He, has, he didn't say that, but he did. That ratio, when people were just hanging out for 24 hours, was 20 to 1. So that was very interesting to me that it's such a rich, a good relationship is such a rich environment of kindness and generosity to one another, giving your partner the benefit of the doubt, you know, that your partner's intentions are positive even if, you know, they didn't say it the right way or something like that. Um, so it was pretty dramatic. And in, in Seattle, this has become really well known. I, I was leaving a Starbucks a couple of months ago, and a guy drove by in a truck and rolled down the window. And he said, five to one, right? <laughs> I said, right. <laughs> so at least locally, people have heard about this ratio. Uh, I think it's a pretty amazing ratio. Next, John was asked about his active listening process and how that was affected by his perception of what Julie says. How did his ability to listen change when her words felt like criticism rather than just the airing of issues? I would say that it's easier to listen to her if she's not in attack mode or defensive, much easier to listen. But the masters, even if their partner was critical or defensive, would communicate the same thing. We have a, a videotape of a guy who's a lawyer, and he's helping his wife identify what it is in his personality that makes her the most angry. <laughs> and he's saying, well, is it, is it something about the way I talk? She says, yes, it's the way you talk. Well, is it, <laughs> is it that I'm, you think I'm authoritarian? Yes, you're authoritarian. <laughs> the way you say things, she says, is so definite, like I have spoken. He says, well, yeah, I can be that way. It works in the courtroom. She says, doesn't work at home. He says, I get that. It's an amazing tape. He's sort of my hero. You know, here's this guy helping his wife identify what about him pisses her off the most. And, and he's, he's trying to understand it. And he gets it. He goes, oh, okay. So, you know, he said, what would you like? You know, and it, it's just a, it's a great thing when you can do it. And the masters do it even when their partner is critical. But it's easier. And so in our therapy, we say it's not all on the listener. 
It's really also on the speaker. So the speaker needs to start gently. Talk about, point the finger at, at yourself rather than at your partner and say, here's what I'm feeling about this thing we're talking about, and here's my positive need. Here's my recipe for being successful with me. And that makes it a lot easier, I think, to listen. Another audience member asked the Gottmans if they had studied blended families. Although they hadn't, John and Julie directed those interested to the book Step Families by Dr. James H. Bray and John Kelly. There was a question about whether there was much of an observable evolution over the decades of their studies. Are the trends of relationship communication changing or staying the same? We've been studying you know, this stuff for a long time, and, and, and we analyze for these cohort differences, and they're not there. You know, so uh, it doesn't, doesn't seem like these things change. And, uh, you know, Jim mentioned the staff coding, and a lot of it is coding nonverbal behavior as well as verbal behavior. And so it's really fun to be able to observe couples and see what's going right and what's going wrong. So we can go anywhere on the planet and sit in a restaurant and take a look at how kids relate to parents and how couples relate to one another and really be able to tell what's going on without even knowing the language. Finally, the last audience member asked what were the top three factors of a successful marriage? Um, okay, so one is um, express your needs. Absolutely crucial. Don't keep them inside, right? How many of you were raised that it was absolutely great and wonderful to express your needs? <laughs> one half. There's, there's one, yeah, there's, right? There's I mean, most people. of us, yeah, yeah, most of us were not, right? So that is, un, it's an unfortunate consequence of kind of the American ethic, right? That we're not supposed to rely on each other. We're not supposed to be dependent. But as was mentioned earlier, we really are pack animals, and we will literally die if we don't depend on each other. We will. Remember right. failure to thrive babies? Those were babies who were not held, who were not touched. They were fed, they were kept warm and dry, and they died anyway because they were not held and touched. We still need that. Mm -hmm. So express your needs. Just do so by saying what you feel about what, not about the personality flaw of your partner, but about the situation and how your partner can shine for you. So try to express your need as a positive need, as what you do want that will allow your partner to shine for you, not what you don't want and what you resent. So say what you do want, first of all. And secondly, for those of you who's, who are on the listening end of the needs, try your very best to say yes. And that doesn't mean violating your own boundaries, but if there's a way that you can even honor a part of your partner's need, try to do so. We found in the apartment lab that 86% that couples who were successful responded to each other's bids for connection and needs 86% of the time. The ones who were not successful, 33% of the time. So try to be there. That's number two. Number three, uh, I would say 
how, ask your partner these deeper questions that the book is full of. These are, are questions that really help you to open up who your partner is. We forget to do that. We just broadcast instead of asking things. And there's always more to learn. Human beings are infinite. There's always more to learn. So keep asking your partner those big, lovely, wonderful questions about dreams, about spirituality or the lack of it, about connection to nature, about their own personal dreams, about their own purpose for being. How often do we ask that? When I think about my own research, the research that I started doing with John years ago, the work that you guys do with couples now, um, if there's one thing that I've really learned is that there, there's almost nothing more close to what you might call our sort of heart and soul than, than our relationships. Our relationships are so vitally important. The, your point about failing to thrive, people used to kill violators of rules by just kicking them out. Because when yeah. you're by yourself, you die. People can't survive on their own. Um, so these relationships are so vitally important. There's so much potential pain involved because of that. And many of us uh, do have that commitment, but we don't know how to stop saying, oh, God damn it. You know, when, when so you don't know how to stop rolling our eyes or to go, Rah! and throw a fit and slam the door. And the, what, what I've heard so many couples say is, can, can I, is there hope for us? Is there hope for us? Can we change as a couple in at least the direction of uh, not feeling so much fear and pain in the relationship that we have? Great question. I totally believe we can change. I've seen it. You know, it's not speculation. I've seen it over and over and over again. People who have suffered some of the worst betrayals, pain that they've caused each other, they've inflicted on each other. You know, I, I believe that people ultimately... Most people, <laughs> most people want to do good. They want to do good. They want to experience love. They want to experience connection. And most people don't know how. People didn't take Relationships 101 in high school. People so many were, you know, were raised in families where conflicts were a mess. You know, they were very badly fought or not talked about at all. And people don't know how to reach their partners, don't know how to say what it is that they feel or what they need. And they're so hungry to learn. That's and why we can been, learn? And they can. Absolutely. They can. It's like, it's like learning a musical instrument. You don't, have a, a, you don't have to have a lot of talent to play chopsticks. Right? <laughs> you can do it. Speak for yourself. 
<laughs> Look who's talking. This guy is a stellar musician. You may not know him, but he's also a great musician. Anyway, so, you know, the stuff that we discovered that healthy couples were doing was not rocket science. It wasn't impossible. You didn't have to become, you know, an Olympic social worker, gymnast, to be able to communicate to your partner. You could just say, I'm upset that the kitchen is a mess. <laughs> Would you please clean it up, darling? <laughs> it works, you know, it works. So, you know, the, the stuff that we have worked on, I mean, we have probably, God, I don't know, we've probably seen something like 50,000 couples in our workshops mm -hmm. at Holy this point, two-day workshops, I right? I nap just hearing about that. We do, too. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we have seen that 87% of couples, and many of them are, are very seriously distressed when they come in, 87% make major breakthroughs on gridlock conflicts. They just need <clears throat> the tools. That's it. They need the tools. And they need a little hope. And sometimes, if we're doing therapy with them, we carry the hope for a while because they've been suffering for a long time and they've fallen into despair. But over time, things begin to change and they can change very quickly. There's a videotape that we put together uh, for training therapists and it came from the apartment lab. And, uh, and there are two clips on the videotape. One is called Spain Without Interest. And yeah. so this videotape, uh, the wife says, uh, you know, I'd like to go to Spain one of these days. And the husband says, you know, I went to Spain once before I met you, and I arrived in, in Madrid in the middle of a military coup attempt. And I was walking to my hotel in between soldiers with fixed bayonets. And she's completely uninterested. <laughs> she says nothing in response, and there's long pause, and then they turn away from each other. And the second clip is called Bread with Interest. <laughs> Bread. Bread. And this couple is sitting in the apartment lab, and he's saying, remember the bread we had when we were kids? Like Wonder Bread, the ad was you squeeze it and it would pop up, you know? And, and she said, she says, yeah, you know, it was terrible bread. You know, it's that, it's that white bread that you you know if you squeeze it it just kind of dissolves and you have to put mayonnaise on it for you know for the food not to get and he says yeah you know and she says now you know now we have a central bakery you know that that crusty bread that's soft inside and he goes yeah that's so great and you tear it all like that and he says yeah i love tearing it like that you know and and they're just talking about bread and they're yeah. totally fascinated by one there another. you go there's your assignment <laughs> There's your assignment. Get excited about That's bread. That's what it is. That's it. <laughs> Guys, uh, I have all these little earmarked uh, you know, uh, pages in the book. I have gone through this book, and I have known these guys for decades. I don't mean to right. alarm you, but it's been decades. <laughs> and I have read many of these books. I know this research intimately. And you this do. was a new experience for me. This is a really new experience for me. There were moments in this book, I swear to God, that made me tear up. And it's because um, it, it respects 
so many parts of a person and so many parts, so many aspects of a couple. And the, the call to learn about each other and know each other is so sincere and, and felt. And it really comes through. I highly recommend this work. Thank you, Thank you Jim. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all Thank for coming. You. Yeah. Great. Wow. Yeah, they are quite a pair. You can barely hear it. It's just thrown in certain sentences. Um, but they call each other babe, which seems pretty unusual for, for professionals to do, um, almost especially if they're in the same line of work on stage talking about that work. I, just, I love it. It's really cute. It is really cute. And they've done that sort of thing for a long time. You know, John's funny. He has himself been divorced several times. <laughs> and uh, he's the first person to say that He's kind of a relationship idiot when it comes to just sort of his gut. He sort of hacked his way into being a good relationship partner. And I think that one of the, the things that he's learned is that those little moments of affection, they add up right. to a lot of, of good shared feeling. And so it's maybe not as spontaneous as sure. you know yes. we, we idealize relationships to be. Right. But that's interesting, too, because it reveals that these things don't necessarily have to be spontaneous. No. Yeah, we hold we hold ourselves to these impossible standards. And John's saying, no, 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 just do it. Yeah, it seems a lot more mathematical and habitual. The other thing I've noticed is they talk a lot about confrontation and, and how normalized confrontation should be in a relationship. Not to say that you should be fighting, but that if you have a problem, it like should be aired. Absolutely. <laughs> Immediately and as directly and like solidly as possible. You know, there's two options when you have a real problem in a relationship. One is you end the relationship. And the other is you, I guess there's three options. You live with the problem. And the other is you try to do something about the problem. Right. And what's interesting about their observations over the decades is that all of those three options in the Gottman's view are viable, right? Right. And in fact, one of the, the key observations, as we heard, is that a lot of the things that people have fights about never get resolved. Yeah. And people just change. fight about yeah, them. They, they don't just, change. Yeah. Julie describes this cycle that they go through where his mess builds and builds and builds and then she finally starts to have that edge in her voice <laughs> and maybe she even explodes a little bit and right. he cleans it up yeah what they're trying to do is take some steps back right and go this is part of the landscape right yeah yeah it's really really profound well we'll have a new episode out in two weeks and in that one you're going to talk to john allen could you tell us a little bit about him yeah he was my graduate student advisor yeah and I'm so grateful for that. Also, he is a really close friend of mine. We have worked really hard on a really tricky scientific question regarding the meaning of asymmetrical patterns of activity in the prefrontal cortex. And if that seems a little bit specific, it is. <laughs> The music of Circle of Willis is written and performed by Tom Stoffer and his band, The New Drakes. For more information on how to purchase their music on our website, go to circleofwillispodcast.com. You can also find all of our old episodes on that website. If you haven't already, subscribe to Circle of Willis wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates. Circle of Willis, human stories of the science that shapes our world. <laughs>